You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is Danny Anderson, Assistant Professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania, welcoming you again to one, another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Uh, this one is a, a real great pleasure for me. I, at the beginning of this year, sent out a little call for folks who are creative types or you know bloggers or whatever, or podcasters, to contact me to sort of talk about their work. And out of the blue, oops, I hit my own mic, excuse me. Uh, out of the blue, there was, a, I had a, a real, the blessing of being contacted by uh, Yahia Lababidi, who is a poet um, who has this really amazing book of aphorisms called Where Epics Fail. And uh, Yahia reached out to me to uh, come talk about his work on the show and and sent me a copy of his book. And it was just such a a great experience to read. And there's so much wisdom in there. I really can't wait to share it with everybody. So let me, uh, before I go any further, welcome Yahia to the show. Yahia Lababidi, how are you doing? I am doing well, Danny. Thank you for having me. I am equally curious and privileged to be speaking to you. I I, I stumbled across your podcast and I thought this is intelligent and, and searching and I'd love to be part of that conversation. Uh, well, well, you're tailor-made for what we do here. Um, I honestly, uh, the the way the, the subject matter, the form, everything you do is so interesting. And uh, I just, I can't wait to get into the aphorisms themselves. But um, before we get into that, I want to kind of set this up with a little bit of background for the reader. So could you tell us a little bit about your background and your artistic influences? You're Egyptian, but it goes a lot further than that. Uh, do you want to kind of uh, fill us in on who you are? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to summarize. So I'm I'm um, born to an Egyptian mother and a Lebanese father. I was born and raised in Egypt. I left at 32, I want to say. So I've been in the States for 13 years. And I'd come to college here earlier. Uh, I'd gone to GW in D.C., but I didn't think of myself as living here. And I'd gone back to, to Cairo, where I worked for around 10 years with the United Nations, speechwriter, editor, etc. And then one day, I guess it had been coming, it had been building. One day I just decided enough was too much and I needed out. This was before our revolution, but mm. I just, I felt somehow there was less air to breathe. And I, I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to take this leap and see how it goes. And, and I made a life here. I, you know, within, within, uh, couple years I, I was married I began publishing books I was fortunate enough to have something called an alien of extraordinary ability visa which is granted to artists which gave me a bit more security to think oh you know they want me here I, I'm not a burden on anyone they're interested so all, all of that sort of fell in place and I've been here for the last 13 years and this is home now Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and so tell us a little about your sort of artistic influences. How did you come into poetry? Um, this is not your first book of poetry. Um, this You've got, you know, a, a record there. So how did you uh, come into this as, a, as an art form? 
It, it may have been, without sounding too uh, pretentious or uh, possibly esoteric, it may have been passed in the bloodstream. My my grandfather, whom I never met, um, but I'm named after, another Yahya Lababidi, and I, for the longest time I felt I didn't have the right to use my name because I wasn't equal to what he'd achieved. He was a poet and a musician, and and somehow... Uh, even though, like I said, I didn't meet him, he had passed that on to my dad, who used to go to poetry slams back in the day when he was a teenager. But he was discouraged to take that route because, you know, according to my grandmother, who's still alive, they'd already had one poet in the family, and that's enough. That's, you know, <laughs> utterly impractical. Get a real job. So he became an engineer, and then, you know, I couldn't be an engineer because uh, that wasn't what I was need to be and I, I was fortunate to have an encouraging um my, my folks were encouraging we had a sort of an informal literary salon at, at our at our home growing up where there was poets and artists and philosophers and i grew up not knowing this was my tribe but feeling somehow very curious and, and eventually safe in their company so much so that i preferred their company to the company of kids my own age as mm. a teenager mm. and uh I, I'm, I'm sorry to say I don't read Arabic fluently. I speak it, uh, but I, I went to American schools as a kid, and I, I, my second language was French, and so I, I sort of assumed I, I'd have Arabic, but I never formally studied it enough to read and write. I can, I can read with some difficulty. I certainly can't write it. So I was reading in English, and um, I would say, you know, all sorts of literature, uh, German literature, French literature, Russian literature in translation got me going. Maybe Gobran was an early influence. Mm -hmm. Wilde was an early influence. These are these are aphorists who I didn't know what aphorisms were back in the day. I was like I'm 14 or so. But I thought that's what I, I mean. That's tremendous. If you could sum up, you know, Wilde was was arrogant enough to say he had summed up all existence in a phrase. So I thought if you could. <laughs> I, I, if you could just sum up, you know, a great deal like that in, in a sentence. Uh, and, and then in college, I met Nietzsche and that, that set my world spinning for a good decade. And, uh, and, I, and I began writing in the margins, answering, answering back these literary masters in aphorisms, which eventually became my first book. Oh, that's interesting. So the aphorisms for you began as a kind of entering into the conversation of literature. Uh, this is sort of your responses to uh, a lot of what you were reading and experiencing. Uh, that's really fascinating. I want to I want to get into the nature of aphor aphorisms in a little bit and uh, and why that is something that appeals to you as a poet. But um, before that, I, I like to use these kind of creator episodes to maybe inspire other listeners who want to do something creative themselves. And so to that end, what is your creative process? Do you have a regular schedule? What practices do you employ to facilitate inspiration uh, and, or, or whatnot? Do you have a, a sort of system that you follow? I still don't know where it comes from. Uh, I do know that if I do certain things, um, certain rituals, wear, wear certain hats, uh, be in the right place, I'm more likely to, to have something to say. The things that I've done in the past, which don't always work, um, are to read uh, obsessively. I mean, I think, I think that's absolutely necessary for any writer. The, the, the reading is a constant. The writing is occasional. Mm. But you're reading and, and sort of... 
a very diet, uh, irrespective of what type of a writer you are, it's a good idea to read widely, the same way it is to live widely and find a balance between those two. For me, silence is, is a big deal. I'm, um, I'm between, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm between a chatterbox and, and, a, and, a, and a hermit. I'm drawn to people like Thomas Merton and, and these silent hermits because I do know that this is the capital of, of riches where if one can endure it long enough, you will overhear yourself. And then beyond that, uh, dot, 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 whatever, whatever else you'd like to call it. Mm-hmm. But um, silence, silence is definitely a big part. Reading is a big part. I do know now over the years that it's not a good idea to strain for feeling. And I, I've, I've, I've grown to respect these, um, what would you call, uh, I don't know, writer's block or dry periods. I, I don't, I don't see them that way. I, I think they're quietly fertile in their own uh, right, in their own mysterious way. And our very souls are being rewritten. So I, I, I try not to interfere with that or force that. And just make myself available. Uh, pay attention, really. That's fascinating to me. If I can uh, kind of get a little personal on my own uh, account here. Right now, mm-hmm. I'm in my freshman composition class that I'm teaching. Uh, my students are writing an essay about the the value of solitude in uh, yes. in in, uh, yes. in the moral life. And so I, I think it's really uh, fascinating that you actually find something creatively productive it isn't just sort of rest and it isn't a, a moment of shutting down for you it's a moment of generation uh, uh and and kind of recovery and actually work is being done in those silent spaces and i know that you have several uh many off aphorisms about silence uh in, in in the book and so this clearly is something that's important for you yeah solitude i didn't mention that but i would if you had asked me this question five years ago or ten i would have said right away silence and solitude even before reading because i think it's 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 when you're in that space again that um you you are likely to to pay better attention and to overhear because because if, if you want to i mean one could say that the air is is dense with poetry and it's just there for the plucking if you know where to go and, and how to how to approach it but for that you have to be still you have to be still and i I think of stillness and silence as somehow of the same family yeah um i think in in our day and age that is so countercultural and even revolutionary Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of not being busy not being productive not creating something to show somebody that you were doing something of value right um it's it's the most sort of radical thing you can do uh in in american culture probably at this time um and so yeah that's a very fascinating um perspective on that and i will be sure to share that with my students as well um hopefully it'll be an inspiration to them um and, and i do find honestly that the my the young people that i'm teaching they do have this um like sense that there is something wrong with always being plugged in on their cell phone and and they know that there's some they're they're missing out on something important of life but they just have a hard time not fulfilling that impulse to reach for the cell phones and i know that you have a giant section of aphorisms about social media that i want to get to later on but yeah, no, I think I think people instinctively know, and I mean, even even if the culture is telling you otherwise, there is this dis-ease, or uh, dis-ease really is the word, where you sense something is not quite right, and if you want to, if, if people are comfortable speaking of the soul, 
the, the, the soul knows what it needs. And when it's denied its proper food or nourishment or sustenance, it revolts in many ways. And, and that revolt could take uh, the form of, of destructive behavior or shutting down or depression or whatever you like. So, so people know whether they're plugged into their phones or they're avoiding silence and solitude. They know when, when they're not you know, feeding themselves what, what they ought to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so but I want a, a little bit more background before we get into kind of the meat and bones of, uh, of the work itself. You, uh, your background is a really interesting one, and you have come to America in a period that's extremely kind of um, filled with tension for immigrants, right? I mean, you were there, you've been here predating the Trump administration, but right. um, you, you've right. experienced um a time in America where immigrants from the Middle East particularly experience the world differently. How does that play into your philosophy and your work? Well, you know, for the longest time, I tried not to take this personally because I thought they don't know me. And if they knew me, they wouldn't uh, perceive matters in this way. So they have a, a, a a, mis a misperception of matters and it, the, the news is partly to blame and and also in curiosity on the part of the person who's not looking past those headlines or seeking alternative news and and to be quite fair um the stories in the news with the you know the true ones are disturbing i mean i if i were if i were here bro born and raised here and i knew nothing about the world and every time i heard uh, a story of, of violence or terrorism or the rest of it, and it had a foreign name attached to it and, and a religion that wasn't my own, I would be suspicious. Uh, and, but I, I would hope that I would want to learn a little bit more and see that that that, that the first victims of, of this uh, radical, violent, blasphemous, really, uh, way of being are the, the people of that faith themselves. For example, moderate Muslims are always the first victims of of any kind of fundamental or radical uh, behavior. Mm. So I initially coming here, I thought to myself, it's it is what it is. I, I did not expect to be able to come here as easily as I did. Being single, Muslim, male, Arab, and young, I had you know five strikes against me. Mm. But I was very fortunate because things moved very easily. I. I I had um, the United Nations, you know, send a letter to get me my visa. That moved smoothly. I came here. I got this artist visa. That moved smoothly. I'd encounter all sorts of um, odd things along the way, like you know, people at at a, at a at a bar or even at home at a restaurant, or who would say things like, you know, all there is no such thing as a moderate Muslim, or all Arabs are this and that, or children who I'd gotten along with, you know, for the whole weekend would say, oh, but your people do X, Y, and Z. And I, and I always said, oh, they don't know any better. You know, they, if, you, if, you, if, if I walk them through this, they'll see how it's unfair to, you know, characterize two billion souls by, by this uh, extremist fringe that, that, they, that they're exposed to or that they've heard of. But the longer I stayed here, and, and certainly post-Trump, it became difficult to avoid and it became difficult to be apolitical and to pretend it was a non-issue mm. I, I i i regarded it actually as part of my vocation to speak up and say you know um because this is 
the thing you, you fear most, because this is the thing you misunderstand the most, I want to show you the beauty of this faith. I want to show you the generosity of this culture. I want to show you what, I, what I've been shown of, of goodness and, and, and to remind you essentially that you know where you're born and what you're born into, these are accidents, accidents of time and place. I could have been you and you could have been me. So let's, let's look at the common thread here. And that's a theme I see so strongly in here is sort of this kind of longing for like true community and, and this sort of uh, reduction of the self um, towards that end even. If I could like point to a particular aphorism that comes to mind as you were talking, it's on uh, page 34 uh, of, uh, of the book. Um, which is called Where Epics Fail, by the way. I'm not sure if I even mentioned the name of the book at the beginning. Um, and so if I haven't, I, I apologize for that. Um, but uh, it's To Forgive is Radical. Do you want to read that or, or shall I? Uh, I? I mean, let me, you said page 34? Yeah. I have the book here. I feel okay. weird reading your words for you when you're right here. No, so. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I'm happy to read it. To Forgive is Radical and Visionary. It not only overlooks the past, but also sets aside the need for justice in the interest of a better future. Yeah, uh, I, I feel like that's related to what you were just talking about and how you're dealing with people who are just coming at you from a kind of ignorant and uh, uh, and sort of selfish uh, perspective. And, and yeah. I, yeah, yeah, I mean, that applies. See, see, that's the thing. I mean, that applies to, to what we're talking about on, on a sort of broader level, but it also applies to a more intimate level, whether it's family or friends or loved ones. And, and, and I think of nations as an extension of sort of your larger self because of that affinity that we have. We, you know, this is my tribe. These are my people. Uh, I have to defend them. I have to speak up for them. But I mean, it's the case if, 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 if a friend, if you feel a friend misunderstands you or a family member hurts you and you, 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 you tell yourself they, they don't know better. You know, it's just, it's, 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 please forgive them. Uh, they, they know not what they do kind of thing. Yeah. If they knew otherwise, they, they wouldn't, they wouldn't quite behave this way. And you see it when people are exposed, whether through, I don't know, film or an encounter with a person uh, to, to something that they don't know. And suddenly their worldview is, is, comes into a sharper focus or, or it shifts altogether and they, and they begin to see things differently that they weren't exposed to. Yeah. And, and it's a, a function of being kind of bound in a place that you just happen to be born in, as you said, right? And, and uh, being aware that I very easily myself when I get offended at people who are being ignorant and stupid, um, I have to realize, had I been born in a different situation, I would have not known not to be ignorant and stupid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. And having no, a, a little compassion um, for that is uh, uh, kind of a, a way to check my own ego, I think, uh, w with regards to these these issues. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I have two aphorisms that come to mind now, uh, again, that can be applied to the strictly intimate and then expanded to accommodate nations and such. But it, it's, it's a matter of compassion and, and, like you say, overcoming the ego. So I have an aphorism, I don't know what page it's on, but uh, about compassion being, I define compassion, I say it's to recognize the role we play in the creation of our enemy. Mm. And, and a free person has no enemy. So, so, so I'm not saying, for example, and I think it's, it's fair to say this, even if I get, you know, flack for saying this, 
that you know the Muslim community they are required to to do some housekeeping to get their home in order because if it's more than one to ten to a hundred or what one one death is too many you know but then you have to situate the thing into context and you say what are the politics how did this come about and is this uh, existing in a vacuum and are these people reacting to what they believe is violation and is this proper retaliation so 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 of course one has to ask themselves on both ends i ask myself as a, as an egyptian and i ask myself as an american i you know what is my role in in the creation of my so-called enemy i don't believe in enemies i don't believe in any of that nonsense or or revenge or all of that but i also think that as we make peace with ourselves as as a people as a nation we become more tolerant of our own faults in others so so you say oh that's why they're behaving that way mm. you know and possibly i might do the same thing if i were in their situation with the same blinkers on mm-hmm um, that's exactly right, right, and and that's I think the importance of um, the meditation that, that you're talking about the the silence and the 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 you know this solitude and able to come to these new perspectives. You're actually pulling yourself out of the, your cultural context uh, to be alone and reflect upon it, uh, but also the 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 voracious reading that you do exposes your imagination to a, a variety of experiences and, and, and enriches your ability to actually think empathetically towards other people. Um, which is, which is necessary. Uh, Danny, I remember, I don't know what this is, forgive me, but I remember sort of when, when I first approached you, I remember looking, looking you up and just to, to learn a little bit more about what you do. And you said something somewhere about feeding the Christian imagination. Okay. I, I don't know if you said that was your goal for, for, for the podcast or or generally speaking, and that really captured my own imagination. I thought, what a wonderful thing to say. And I think this idea of, of reading is to allow yourself more lives than one. There's only so much experience you can pack into one life. Mm-hmm. There's only so many places you can be, so many people you can meet in one life. And and it's and and reading affords you more lives than one, and more experiences than one. And 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 for the longest time, I wouldn't even read contemporary uh, fiction or literature or or, or 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 really much of what was out and about, especially when I was in Egypt, because I was so, I was still catching up. There were so many great dead. Uh, wise folk that I had to go and consult with and and try to 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 to, to learn from this 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 uh, Mortui Vivos that said this Latin um, line about the dead shall teach the living mm. and and I think there's so much to be had in again for going back to reading in in consulting with the great dead and seeing what we've learned so that we don't have to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. You know, and so that by 50 or 60 or 80, if we're lucky, we realize, ah, you know, maybe this is not a good idea. I should have behaved otherwise. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I can, uh, you know, my experience teaching in what is so-called Trump country. I mean, where we live is central Pennsylvania. And it's that <laughs> that 
part of America that the, the coastals don't understand, right? Um, and so most many of my students have, um, you know, pretty set in stone ideas about the Colin, Colin Kaepernick NFL protests, for example, right? And so, um, and they seem rather intolerant of those ideas at times. But then when I have them read, uh, last semester we read a book by Chester Himes um, and then a Colson Whitehead book about race. Uh, they're much more um, receptive to these kinds of institutional critiques uh, of racism. And, uh, and and so there's something about literature that engages these questions at a, uh, a different, you know, mental level, I think, or, or maybe it goes beyond the mental and into the kind of spiritual and, uh, and they're more able to kind of readily accept uh, these new experiences that they might not have been before. And that's just a, a practical experience of my own life. I, I'm so heartened, frankly, and I don't want to be too controversial about this, but I'm so heartened by, you know, uh, Kaepernick and, and others who take a stand like that. I think you're obligated, if you have any sort of platform, to to speak on the behalf. I mean, I think this is the role of the artist too, to, to give voice to those who don't have one, mm -hmm. to give a profile to those who who are not in your privileged position. So, I mean, I remember coming to college, whenever that was, you know, twenty some years ago. And there was the Million Man March. And I remember rushing out and saying, please, please, can I join? And and the thing was, you know, uh, initially they were like, where are you from? And I was like, I'm from Egypt. They're like, yeah, absolutely. You're from Africa. Come on down. <laughs> and I thought it was I thought it was a privilege. And and the clo the longer I live here, the more aware I am of, of ra racial tensions. And that's I mean, there's no way around it. If you look at America's short history, when I say short, I'm comparing to my own as an Egyptian. I mean, you you can't possibly say that race that we are a post-racial society. That's absurd. Mm -hmm. These things take time to heal, and part of part of being someone who loves their country is 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 daring to thoughtfully and 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 carefully critique it. And that's exactly what he's doing, and what others are doing. And and I I, I can't even understand how people. Uh, have this knee-jerk reaction to, to him taking the knee. But at the same time, I know that, that people, um, when it comes to, they say, you know, socially you shouldn't discuss politics or sports or whatever, those are precisely the subjects I want to talk about and religion mm -hmm. because those are the things that get people hot and I want to examine why are you so hot about it? Yeah. Well, and so much of your work in, in this book is, I mean, it, it's very uh springing out of an interest in the spiritual, if not directly about the spiritual. And and I feel like that's really what's at stake when people will get upset about what the NFL protests and Kaepernick are doing. It's that it violates some, something that they're worshiping, right? Uh, and there's mm -hmm. some form of worship going on. And yeah. we have just sort of conflicting um, objects of worship, I think, at play in a lot of these, uh, in a lot of these debates. That's very interesting. Yeah, no, there is. I do think if you take um, a, a spiritual, metaphysical perspective, you don't permit yourself to get caught up in all of these false idols. Uh, pop culture and, and, and the rest of it, I mean, this idea of, listen, when I was in Egypt, I didn't get up to, to salute the flag or whatever it is. I In Egypt, because we are exposed to corruption, because we know deep down that that the people, you know, our our, our president, our so-called elected president, our our dictators, these are not people that speak for us or have our best interests in mind. You would be sitting in a coffee shop, and the president comes on, the ex one, the one who was booted out, uh, Mubarak, 
he'd come on, who'd, you know, he'd been in office for 30 years. He comes on and people just get up and turn the volume down <sighs> because, because you know, everything he says is going to be a lie. And we are passionate people. You know, Egyptians are excitable people. They, they, they run hot, they run cold. And so they don't want to expend their energy in that direction. Now, now coming here, I realized it's it's a whole nother story to critique your government mm -hmm. and people, you know, think of it as, as something sacred. I'm thinking, what are you talking about? These are these are civil servants. These are people meant to serve you. And if you see that they are not serving you in, in, in the in, in the best way possible, then you have to remind them how to do their job. So I never I, I never quite had that awe. Of, of you know political figures or presidents as people beyond critique on the contrary yeah um well that's a great um, introduction i think we know you a little bit better and i think that the when we get into the aphorisms here i, I think that they'll make a lot more sense knowing where you're coming from there's this hmm. really smart critique of uh, of politics and race but under uh, underpinning all of that is this real love and compassion and spirit of community um, that I think tries to bind all this together and sort of perfect um, the world that we're living in. And I, th I find it really inspirational. Um, before we can get uh, into the things that I want to talk about aphorisms as a form, mm -hmm. though, um, where epics fail is a collection of aphorisms that scan a whole variety of subjects and not necessarily in order. They kind of come back and forth. Um, can you talk a little bit about why as a poet this form attracts you? Um, when we think about poetry, uh, the form of the aphorism is not one that often uh, gets lumped in, but I think it's one of the oldest and most kind of powerful forms of, 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 of word of spoken word that we have or written word that we have. Uh, what is it for you that uh, you're attracted to? You know, I'm not, I'm not, quite sure but i've tried to answer this uh, over the years in many different ways i think it has to do with with many things one of those is that i grew up in a culture where the illiteracy rate is very high unfortunately in, uh, in egypt and so oral the oral tradition and and sort of street wisdom uh, through proverbs is is a big deal so someone could be utterly uneducated in schools but yet very wise in the school of life. And, mm -hmm. and you have people who speak in complete sentences, possibly entire conversations in Proverbs or sayings. And of course, it's an old wisdom tradition. If you go back to the Bible, if you go you know, before that, uh, it is associated with wisdom literature. And, and so I grew up hearing you know, grandmothers on both ends, maternal and paternal, who could really have entire conversations in Proverbs. And as a young man, I didn't know what exactly I liked about them, but I just thought they were so wonderful that you could, you know, it was like um, uh, somehow a coral reef. It was like the, the 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 dead and the living merging together. It was it was it was street philosophy and it was old wisdom and it was just it was portable. You could just you you had one for every occasion. You could just pull <laughs> it out and share it, and people appreciate it and they oohed and they odd. So I, I grew up with this kind of sing-songy, witty-wise way of speaking. And then, as my fa like I said, my father is Lebanese, so uh, I was exposed to Gobran early on, who was a poet, philosopher, but who really spoke, uh, wrote like the prophet and sand and foam in aphorisms. And his his uh, heroes really were uh, Blake, 
Nietzsche and the Bible. Mm. And I hadn't read Blake, Nietzsche, or the Bible at, at 12 or 13 or however old I was when I first encountered Gobran. But when I did get to those three, I was I was equally taken because I I saw where he got his source material. I was like, ah, I know where you got that one. Or, you know, I see where you would find that appealing. And and I saw how this was all of a piece. And it was again this idea of condensing. You know, I, I define aphorisms to myself as what is worth quoting from the soul's dialogue with itself. So you're walking around the way we all are, thinking about whatever, and every once in a while, something will leap out like a standalone sentence, and, and that will encapsulate your entire thinking on a certain subject. And, 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 and the way I see it is, oh, this is shareable, because I'm not going to share all the ramblings and uh, you know, all the chaos that goes on in my mind, but if, if it's something neat and, and that can take, you know, you give it to someone and they can take their time and dilute it and unpack it and meditate upon it, then that's, that's what an aphorism can do. So I, I, I grew up with, with, with a culture that spoke in them. I gravitated towards literature that was, you know, like I said, Gubran, Wild, Nietzsche, Blake, Schopenhauer, all of these um, great, great aphorists that I was exposed to very early on that I really gravitated towards. And at some point, I found myself writing aphorisms without even knowing I was writing aphorisms. And it began in the margins of their books. Mm. And then I began to transcribe those. And I realized, you know what? I may have a book here. And this was <laughs> funny enough when I, I mean, really, the bulk of my first book was written between the, before the age of, of 21. And, um, and, and, I, and I was not equal to the wisdom that was between the covers, the same way I'm not equal to whatever wisdom uh, you may find in, in this new book. But at least this is sort of where I'm shooting towards. This is, this is, th that's my longing. Yeah. You mentioned Blake and one of the aphorisms about aphorisms um, is aphorisms are the marriage of heaven and hell, poetry and philosophy. Right. And so, yeah, there's yeah. a, and there's something kind of, dialectical about an, a, a really well done aphorism. There's something almost paradoxical, maybe is a better word, um, yeah. that it leaves it perpetually unfinished. And therefore mm. you have to continue to kind of stew over it for a while. Right. And, and Kafka, I'm a big fan of Kafka and, uh, Likewise. And, and, Likewise. and he has many, many like little pithy, um, aphorisms and, and short little parables that do the same thing. And I think that's what makes yeah. them so valuable to my, my own imagination is that you can't, ever finish them right they they, they continue to spin in your head uh, that's really that's really good because um i think that's that's what makes a good aphorism is is the sense that you're not being uh, told what to think or or you have to accept this as the ultimate truth it's a suggestion it's something that's left to grow in your space and, and a good aphorism can grow many different ways and mean many different things to, to different people. And, and, and thank you for mentioning the, the Blake echo, because that's there in that particular aphorism. That, that's, that's intentionally there. Yeah. Because they are kind of um, between genres. And, and um, uh, they are, I mean, I, I come from a philosophy background and I've come to see philosophy as a kind of hell. <laughs> because <laughs> it, 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 this, you know, paralysis of analysis and there, nothing is absolute and nothing is given. And, and it just, it continues in a, in a manner that poetry is okay 
setting the matter down and saying, you take it from here. Yeah. You know, that's fine. I don't have to make an ultimate pronouncement. And it's funny because in America, uh, I've noticed there is some sort of a, an aphorism renaissance, certainly with, with a, there's been a few at least good um, anthologies out recently and a couple of, of books out by aphorists whose day job or, 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 or proper calling is poetry. So it seems to me that poets are the ones who gravitate towards aphorisms. And I think of, you know, James Richardson or, 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 or Alfred Korn or, I mean, there's so many, there's so many, I don't want to single out, uh, but, but Richardson definitely was, was, was a teacher early on for me. So it's not surprising to me that aphorisms and poetry have this overlap. Yeah, uh, and you're talking about philosophy a little bit. Uh, I can't remember where this is, but I remember you invert Descartes at one point and say, I do not think, therefore I am. Uh, and, and yeah. That's, that's yeah. a perfect yeah. example of what you're talking about. Um, yeah, because, because again, again, it's sort of this idea of as much as you can uh, o- overcome the ego. And, uh, and I think thinking as someone, again, with a background in philosophy, became a kind of handicap at some point, this worshiping at the altar of the mind. And um, I wanted out. I wanted, you know, I wanted out of the rational mind and, and its limitations and, and its uh, its chew toys, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and let me just say one more thing about what you're, how you were describing aphorisms and why you you are and your work are such a perfect fit for this show again uh the um a common theme that we revisit here and there on the show is the kind of frustration with binding up wisdom and knowledge inside the walls of academia right and this kind of yeah. wish to do this kind of work in more kind of popular forms so and frankly that's why i do the podcast right i spend mm. much more time doing this sort of thing than i do any academic writing um because i just feel like this is a, a more uh, organic and, and rich way of doing it for me. Um, there's also limitations of my skill level too. Let's just uh, be honest about it. But um, but I also feel like, and so when you're talking about the aphorisms uh, status as a popular form of wisdom, I think that's a, another reason why a book like this is, I think, so interesting to my audience. And I really cannot recommend it enough. I will put a link to how to obtain this book in the show notes. Uh, if you go to sectarianreviewpodcast.com, you'll find a, a link um, and find a, a way to buy this for yourself. It's uh, I cannot highly recommend it enough. So, um, yeah. Um, Thank you. Thank you for that, Danny. I, I'm moving more and more away from this. Um, uh, I, I, I like the idea of non-readers approaching this book, even mm-hmm. people who I mean, this is sort of the opposite of academia and it's and it's ex- exclusive club. Uh, I respect uh, I certainly respect uh, learning and scholarship, and I'm in many ways drawn to that world. But I do find it confining and limiting, and and I like I like the notion of, I mean, people are living, and it's and 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 living doesn't ha- that you need different things when you're out in the world than when you're in a in a cloistered environment speaking to one another. You need you need stuff that gives you a, a different kind of sustenance, and I, I I like I like for example, Rumi says. Sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment. I, I like this <laughs> state of living in perpetual, humbling bewilderment. Yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, and I think that that's uh, a value that I think serves everybody well. I, honestly, that that just that humility, uh, the, the, and to be allow yourself to be bewildered and and exist in a state of wonder 
is a kind mm-hmm. of humility, right? And so, and I think that that's uh, one thing that the aphorism um, does so well that it's it's really sharp, insightful, philosophical wisdom packaged in a way that anybody can appreciate and really kind of gain something from. Um, one of my favorites from the collection is in life's exams. It's no use straining to copy the answers of another mm-hmm. since we're all assigned different questions. Right. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I just love that. Um, and, and there are many, many, I have a whole yeah. wall of sticky notes pointing me to pages that um, <laughs> of my favorite ones. And, and so, yeah, this is a, there's over 800, I do believe in this, uh, in this collection. And so there's a, uh, uh, something for everybody there. Um, Let's get into some of the subject matters that you do approach. Um, and I have kind of a little um, uh, like sequence, I guess, to take these in. But one is about religion and spirituality. So you're Muslim. And um, so uh, how do the views that you have on spirituality, how do they uh, work themselves? How does the aphorism as a form um I don't know how to ask what I'm at what I want to ask. How does the no, aphorism? I think I, know, I think I know what you're saying. I yeah. think I know what you're saying. Um, I, I can't speak as a Muslim poet. I don't think it's fair just because I'm such a bad Muslim. Okay. In the sense that I'm I'm a I'm a cultural Muslim. I'm raised in an environment that is predominantly of that faith. But I was not someone, for example, who went to the mosque the way maybe a good Christian would go to church. I, I mean, I, I join my wife now to church, not every Sunday, but on some Sundays. So I'm not that kind of a Muslim. In okay. fact, I, I rebelled against that because I, I, um, I saw this loud uh, religiosity, which was very much in my face, you know, you walk into a, you you go you sorry you, you go into a cab and they've got the Quran blaring or someone is preaching how you should live, but then you watch them a little closely or you hear them out and it doesn't at all match that. So I threw out, you know, the luminous baby with the sordid bathwater and I said, you know what, I want nothing to do with this. And that's when I became susceptible to, you know, philosophy, specifically existentialist philosophy. And it's only really very recently, like the last, I don't know, five, seven years or so, that I've just very shyly made steps towards, um, it began with mysticism. I, I wouldn't even say I was approaching the, 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 the religion traditionally, because I still, you know, I don't pray five times a day. I don't do this. I don't do that. Um, but I, I was very drawn to the mystical branch, Sufism. Now, I will also read, I mentioned Merton earlier, Christian saints, Jewish saints, Buddhist uh, monks. So I, I, I do think that um, that mysticism somehow exists on a level or it, it occurs where dogma evaporates. And we all meet there. We all meet there. So what Meister Eckhart says would match what uh, Rumi or Hafez or Attar or whomever says. But because it's my language... Uh, even though I'm not not Persian isn't my language, but because that's the air that I grew up breathing, I found that I would sooner return to Sufism than I would to um, any other faith. So, so I, I, I I've been deepening my understanding of the mystical branch of Islam, Sufism, and it I have to say more and more I'm finding myself in that space than anywhere else. That doesn't stop me from, again, seeking and hearing echoes in all different traditions. Yeah. um, And so on that note, I actually had turned to a page, uh, page 31. Uh, There's a a few 
um, thoughts on mysticism kind of grouped together there. Um, and so the, can I have you read far better an imposter? Uh, far better an imposter in the eyes of men and a true mystic in the eyes of God than vice versa. Yeah. So the, I think that to me captures what you're saying there. Do you want to uh, make the connection for me there? Yeah, well, I mean, I think this is the idea of, of, of going against the current or doing what is harder. So so this idea, you were talking about kids earlier, possibly your students, I think, uh, recognizing something is missing and, and valuing solitude mm-hmm. and, and, this, and silence, even though the culture is telling you otherwise. And I think this notion of doing what is harder, even what is hardest, if you want to be ambitious, um, is always worthwhile and is always what the, the, the realm of the spirit teaches you, emboldens you, encourages you to do. To, so if the culture is saying what, one thing and, and you decide to you know, shirk or, or do away with these false idols, uh, it is a kind of uh, monasticism, whether you join a, a monastery or not, mm. to decide to uh, intensify your experience through silence, solitude, meditation. The contemplative life is not one that is encouraged um, in, in popular culture. Let's put it that way, irrespective of whether you're American or not. No, I mean, Egypt is the noisiest place in the world. They do not encourage you to be quiet. The fact that I was living alone was a curiosity to everyone. Why would you live alone? You, your parents are alive. Why would you live alone? Da, da, da. I wanted to live alone so I could hear myself think. <laughs> and so pulling yourself out of a, a particular uh, religious tradition then and, and kind to see the way in which it obscures the truth of God at times. Um, is that sort of what you're getting at there? So being a mystic in the eyes of God, even though it makes you an imposter in the eyes of men. Uh, that, that So there's some sort of devotion in the rebellion, if that makes any that's sense. That's good. No, I think I think I think that I think that's good. I mean, I I really do think it's a time where there's a great hunger, and I define, for example, in 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 this book, I say one definition of success might be refining our appetites while deepening our hunger. Mm. I think there's so much that's vying for your attention, mm. uh, and again, popular culture is loud and 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 omnipresent. It's inescapable, and so this idea of 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 selecting or or moving away from these loud drums and saying, I'd rather occupy you know this this quiet corner here to to think of over here and entertain other possibilities. That's not a popular decision. Right. But yet, but yet in doing so, you might be able to return to to this uh, larger uh, stage, a better person uh, with 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 pockets of quiet and stillness that can be of use and service to those who who have have had their ears filled with, you know, uh, other types of, you know, nonsense, let's call it. Um, I get that. The, and that's the, the monasticism that you're talking about, right? Um, and, it, and I've always been drawn to that. I mean, even, even when I was in Egypt, Danny, it was, it was considered odd that I would go to these monasteries like uh, 
I, I would take these field trips to go. At the time, I was going as a writer who was curious about this ex- extreme experience. But I mean, I would ask uh, St. Catherine or, or whatever. I was very drawn to the desert. And the desert was, to me, a very extreme experience already where all these desert hermits were, were spawned because of this privileged um, space that they were afforded to really go deep. So I would go to these monasteries and ask, you know, I'm not a Christian, but would you mind possibly if I stayed here for a while? I, 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 don't, I, I won't observe closely, but I, I do see the value in this experiment. Of course, that was naive at the time, but I, I do till today respect that intensity and recognize that you're afforded different insights living living the, at that level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that respect for religion is apparent. On page 80, you have a, a collection of, uh, of some aphorisms that kind of deal with that. Um, the, it is guilt that permits the literal... This, me, this is why I'm asking you to read these. <laughs> it is guilt... I see it. Page, <laughs> okay. page 80. Yes. It is guilt that permits the literalist interpretation of faith. Those who believe we should go to hell have raised it themselves on earth. You know, I'll give you my behind the scenes readout on that, although I, I, I try not to do that because it means different things to people, I hope. Okay. But that was my personal stab at, at, at the so-called Islamist fundamentalists. Okay. Uh, because, I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how I think they blaspheme in the name of the Most High. You know, how dare you? in the name of love, uh, perpetuate hate? Mm -hmm. How dare you, in the name of creation, go about and destroy and murder? So, so, so I felt, I felt, I mean, but they're so ready to die, of course, they want nothing better than, than to end their own lives and everyone around them. And I thought to myself, you know, this, this death wish of yours is, is some sort of, uh, they want out because they failed on a deep fundamental level. And so I, I, I feel like it, when I say that those who, who, who believe we should go to hell have raised themselves on earth, that's precisely who I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, that type. And that type, of course, exists in other faiths, but I'm taking my own to task. Yeah. There are you know other people who will discuss Catholicism and the priests and I don't know what and the children. That's That's not for me to talk about. That's for me to observe and say, Hmm. I see. And and you follow that up on the next page. If religions are properly understood as organized love, then by definition, hate is heresy, right? And so that's Absolutely. that's what your that Absolutely. follows up that. Um, but you still have um, you still maintain that generosity of imagination for the religion. Like right after that one about um, dogmatism and, and literalist interpretations, you the very next one is to preoccupy ourselves with the shortcomings of the religious is to lose sight of the marvels of religion of religions. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, and so there is a, a sense in which. You're recognizing that individuals are failing the institution that they're that they're a part of, and, and absolutely. And this is the kind of thing that, as a teenager, I wouldn't be able to say. And I and when I say teenager, I mean in my early thirties, mm. because I was an idiot <laughs> that way. I was a reactionary, rebellious, uh, you know, fighter because because I was still in that, you know, no, you know, what do they know? They say this, but they do that. But then, but th- that's what I was saying. I made the the fatal mistake for too long of throwing out, you know, the luminous baby with with the sorted bathwater. Mm. The bathwater 
is how humans interpret the the thing itself. Yeah. The 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 luminous baby is beyond is beyond everything. Is beyond the priest. Is beyond the terrorist. Is beyond the 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 Buddhist uh, monks who 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 have uh, hatred to I don't know fill in the blanks. All of that does not represent the beauty of the faith itself. The faith is something unassailable, really. And and unfortunately, you have these human shortcomings who are falling short and, and, yet, and yet presenting themselves as standing in the light. Well, before you stand in the light, check your shadow. Hmm. <laughs> nice. And in fact, the shadow only becomes apparent because of the light, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the scariest thing is, is sort of, and I think I have an aphorism about that, is sort of the higher you climb in these stages... Um, it becomes, you know, the, the the shadow redoubles its effort to trip you up. And this is Kafka too, if you want to take it from a secular perspective, who talks about truth, you know, like a, a low-hanging uh, rope designed to trip you up. Yes, <laughs> it's one of my favorites, yes. Right? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. And so um, let me kind of move on um, past religion. This is related, though, and for all the, you know, the discussion we've had about the value of solitude and silence. There's also um, a large proportion of these are about the value of community and sort of living meaningfully and yeah. um, and with kind of grace with other people. Uh, can you talk about those values a little bit? Well, I think the danger, let's start saying there's the balance. And to quote Kafka one more time, since I just dropped his name, it, this notion of of, of solitude or, or self-contemplation seduces, uh, no, sorry, social intercourse, he says, seduces us to self-contemplation. Mm. So it's, again, this balance, You th- there is a danger. And, you know, Merton discusses this, or rather Merton's uh, Desert Fathers discuss this in his Wisdom of the Desert and many echoes in all sorts of different traditions of being caught up in a kind of uh, narcissism of solitude without coming out to the world and testing your views or giving back what you've received. There is a danger of being um, of being sort of caught up uh, in something that that is not for this world. I mean, the point of, let's say, enlightenment or peace or or, or anything in that realm is is to share it. Is not is not to hoard it. Mm-hmm. If, if if you do, you know, even Zarathustra, even even Nietzsche's Zarathustra, I should add, uh, was someone who needed to leave the mountaintop because he was overflowing with honey. Honey being wisdom, mm. there gets there, there is a point where if you don't um, if you don't turn outwards, you you self implode, and it's it's like staring at the mirror for too long. If you're not sort of trained how to do uh, this kind of soul gazing, you you risk madness. Mm. So so I think it's necessary to have this balance between the between the inner world and the outer world and i think anyone who's concerned with the inner world recognizes that it's not a selfish uh, activity yeah and i feel like we're on the same page here uh like we're on the same wavelength because as you were saying that about reflections i had just turned to page 133 and there are two um 
that use the the metaphor of reflection um, in kind of opposite ways there. The first is as social animals, and then the, the one after that about paradox of enlightenment. Do you want to read yeah. those? And because and, I think I feel like that's what you're talking about. Yeah, I think I put those up against each other because even though they occur to me at different times, possibly different years, I thought it's good. There is truth in paradox. So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna read them, having prefaced it by saying there's truth in paradox. Yeah. As social animals, we need one another to reflect upon our interconnectedness and existential solitude. That's one. The second, the paradox of enlightenment, to see our reflection in everything and not to see our reflection in everything. <laughs> yes. I think, I think if you'll permit me just another echo from science, uh, the secular, doubting, possibly even cynical world, but, but also truth-seeking world. Uh, Niels Bohr, physicist, talks about truth and paradox, and he says, and for, forgive me if, I, if I'm paraphrasing, uh, this is not an exact quote, but he says, the opposite of a small truth is evidently a falsehood, mm. but the opposite of a great truth is also another truth. Mm. And I think this too requires stillness and and contemplation because our readiness is to jump and say, "Ah, oh, you contradicted yourself." Ah, oh, do this, but life contradicts herself all the time. If you choose to see it on that level, uh, on another level of stillness to digest this, you realize that this too is an interplay with with its so-called opposite. Yeah, the paradox and the I, I keep wanting to say dialectic because I do feel like you're interested in growth, yeah. which will be my next question. But mm -hmm. I, there's a uh, I feel silly right now that I can't come up with the chapter and verse. Uh, there's two proverbs uh, that come back. They're back to back. One is answer a f answer not a fool in his foolishness, lest you be foolish like him. And the following mm -hmm. one is answer a fool in his foolishness, or he'll think he's wise. Uh, and I, I, again, and I'm, again, I'm paraphrasing. So it gives exactly opposite advice into uh, yeah. succeeding, uh, succeeding proverbs. And so there is something about placing those things in opposites that create this revolution of, uh, of thought that leads to some sort of moral progress uh, and, and because there is no sort of answer to settle upon. And so I think mm -hmm. it was really um, clever that you did that, which leads me to my next question, um, because I feel like um, personal growth and aging uh, seem to be topics that you focus on a lot as well. Uh, there's uh, many about turning 40 that I totally uh, related to. Um, and it, it did me in, Danny. It <laughs> did me in, especially 45. <laughs> 40 was one thing. 45 was another. <laughs> so is aging, though, a kind of source of wisdom for you? I guess I want to go there. I, I I don't dare say that, and especially I mean, since like I, I mentioned my wife earlier, she would laugh in your face <laughs> to say any kind of wisdom, um, and and it's good and humbling that way. Uh, I think I think I I think of aging. So so we're passing through time. And and in time, you 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 know the, the the lesson is repeated, 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 and and you 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 are slightly wary to enter the same um, incorrect position in relation to yourself and the world again and again and again. But but I think I think what happens with forty and then forty five, which is another story, is um, <laughs> your your card for unconscious living is being revoked. So you were permitted 
this kind of blotted out hallucinatory surreal existence to pursue whatever whim you liked, etc. In your teens, in your 20s, in your 30s, you're, you're sort of paying more attention. According to Islam, for example, if, if one were to be literalist, um, 40 is the age of spiritual maturity, mm. because that's the age when Muhammad receives his revelation. Um, in my experience, it means a reluctance to repeat the same mistakes and a kind of uh, just a, a recognition that energy is finite, time is finite. I mean, turning 45, one of the first things that I did is I pulled out the books because, again, I'm book-based and that's how I know the world. I pulled out the books that I had denied myself as a teen because I wasn't equal to them at the time. And I thought, I may not have time to finish these books. So I need to read these books now because who knows how much more time I'm granted. One of these books, which is happens to be uh, hovering nearby, is is Herman Hesse's uh, Magister Ludi, or The Glass Bead Game. Mm. But it's, it's, it's this idea of the t- time is finite now. And, and so how much will you allow yourself uh, to sort of repeat the same mistakes? Mm. Um, absolutely true. And on the the subject of books, um, you have one. Whether we're whether or not we're aware of it, our biography is perpetually being written by the books on our shelves, right? And, and I think that that's uh, as someone who has too many books that that stands out to me very well. Um, and uh, and so uh, there's also more on aging here that I'd like to talk about uh, just a little bit. Um, some of sure. them you've already, uh, you know. Uh, alluded to uh, when our free pass uh, uh, unconscious living is revoked. Um, but there's also another one to grow old is to grow tired of pretending. Right. And, mm. and so there is a sense in which you realize that yeah. you were posturing. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for saying posturing. That's the first word that came to mind. Yeah. I think, I think as kids, we do that because you don't quite know who you are. And that's why we're susceptible to idol worship, you know, whether, I mean, as a kid, I was mad for Michael Jackson or whatever I did as a 12 year old. Uh, And then you realize you're projecting onto these people, these random people, these flawed, but gifted people, uh, uh, all sorts of inchoate desires you, you because you don't know who you are and then as 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 you have a better understanding you of who you are and the games you play with presenting who you are you you just you you don't you don't care as much uh teach us to care and not to care as as Elliot says you know to to care about the precious few things and not to care about the the, the 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 myriad of, of distracting superficial things yeah um i once i'm sure i've told this story on the show before but um i'm a big fan of the the country music singer rodney crowell who's um you know he's kind of an elder statesman at this point but he um uh, i went to see him in a very small venue once and after the end of his set he steps off the stage and everybody starts clapping for the encore and then he immediately just steps back on the stage um and says you know what as you get older you realize let's just cut out all the bs <laughs> Right. Ah, <laughs> just, good for him. He realized give that he, his na- Give me his name again because I want to write it down. Uh, Rodney Crowell, C R O W E L L. 
yes, he's one of my favorite musicians. He's a great songwriter, and uh, yeah, and and his uh, his album Fate's Right Hand is I think it touches on a lot of these um, uh, themes about growing older and sort of dealing with mortality and still finding hope for the future. It's one of my probably five favorite music albums, and so um, a little, I little look into it. a little I'll plug for for, sure. for our friend Rodney Crow out there. Um, and so um, um, I want to get into uh, two other topics, and I'll let you go. I'm really gracious or grateful oh, for I'm you. Not, I'm, <laughs> happy, I'm happy to, to be with you, um, So most of this collection is really philosophical, as we've been talking about. Uh, but you in- include quite a few aphorisms about social media, which are mm-hmm. both really funny and really wise. And so what do you see? Because in a lot of ways, Twitter is kind of our modern version of aphorisms uh, in a lot oh, of ways. And so, but I feel like there's a fallenness to them. And so what do you see when you sit back and observe our lives online? Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm someone, I'm a bit of an extremist in the sense that I vowed never to have anything to do with it. Uh, and I had friends who tried, who coaxed me in, into that world. And, and now that I'm there, I think, I don't know, I think it's almost arrogant not to uh, be where people are going Again, this is like a communal well where they're going to slake the thirst, mm-hmm. whatever it is. You know, they don't even know why they're going there, but they're going there to be with others. You were asking about community earlier. Community has many shapes and forms, and it doesn't have to be where you're from or what religion you are, identify with or what color you are and all this um Superficial nonsense, frankly. It's it's who you are. It's being. It's about being. And so if people are there looking for, I don't know, truth, feedback. Uh, I, I can't afford not to be there. And so uh, after signing up, now I, now I view it as, as a sort of necessary evil in some ways. I, I want to be there. I recognize that it's, again, paradox, paradoxical because in some ways it, you, it makes you feel less alone but it also makes you feel more lonely. So you have you have this contradiction of thinking, oh, you know, I'm part of a larger network. There's a, there's a funny cartoon I can't remember where or who or who's responsible for it, but it's a it's a funeral or I guess what you call a wake here, and um, the wife is saying to a friend about her deceased husband. She says, you know, I thought there would be a larger turnout. He has two thousand friends on Facebook, <laughs> and there's there's three people sitting there. And so it is. It is devastating. It's. I mean, it, it's really harsh, but it also is. A, it's a reminder that it's real and it's not, in the sense that real relationships matter more. But also, there is truth in virtual relations because we are going there, because we thirst. We thirst for human contact. We want to know what this person thought of even silly stuff. This movie, this award show, uh, whatever you know, you, you you're getting you're 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 getting the missing parts of your puzzle as a human being. Yeah, and I feel the same way about. I mean, so much of my um, life is now wrapped up in the internet because of the show and, and and whatnot. But I do feel like through the show, I've made so many really great friendships with people that Absolutely. I've that I've never met, right? But I, I feel like they add so much to my life. And some people I've never even spoken to, but we, we share things. And I think that there's something that's potentially great about this kind of expanding of our social networks. Um, but it can become 
um, something that's destructive, and that's one of the paradoxes of it. And you've got a, an extended section of this book on on this topic, and I feel like, and I don't know um, if you had this in mind when you were assembling these, if, if you were thinking in this way, but in a page before, a couple pages before the social media stuff really ramps up, there's a couple of aphorisms here about kind of monitoring oneself in public. And one is we must not try, we must try not to take our fight with ourselves out into the world. Right. And Uh. so that's one. And an activist, an angry person in search of a cause. Right. I feel like Mm -hmm. these are two kind of warnings about how to kind of prepare oneself to enter into community. Um, And and then um, right before the uh, the meditations on the virtual world, there's nothing virtual about connection, right? So there's something really real that you're doing, even though it's on Twitter, right? right. Um, right. And, and then you get into um, the really great Facebook where we go to deceive others and end up believing our own illusions, right? And you have all these mm-hmm. um, um, really great observations uh, uh, and full of wisdom. Uh, so is that, did you, ha- did you purposefully assemble these in, in some way? I think, first of all, thank you for making the connection, because honest to goodness, I think readers, and especially attentive readers, such as yourself, always uh, illuminate the material for the so-called author. Mm. Uh, because I did not make that connection. Of the, I, I like the idea of readying yourself or preparing yourself for, for uh, social media, because you kind of have to. Because in entering that sphere, you're encountering strangers on, on a level that is not, I mean, you don't have the body in front of you. You don't have eye contact. You don't have body language, which it's devastating for me as, as a writer to learn that 70 to 80% of communication is nonverbal. So, so to know all that and enter that sphere and respect that sphere because souls are involved and longing is involved and curiosity for knowledge and truth is involved, one has to kind of be prepared that, uh, the thing, the thing can can swerve in another direction. So I think partly I, it's me just being in that space and 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 thinking out loud and, and recognizing. Okay, you know, again, balance is required between the inner and the outer life. And this is an occasion, just like any other occasion, dealing with it with with a human being, where there has to be this this balance where you 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 know you you fed yourself enough you fortified yourself enough that you can approach a perfect stranger who possibly could be hostile to you because they don't know you and you can't blame them for not knowing you and and you have to be in a, in a in a position where you can you can maybe give them something that is that is meaningful and have a, 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 an encounter where you both can benefit from yeah, and this is, I mean, the corollary is the taking time for solitude with yourself so that you yeah. can enter into a better community later on, right? Um, yeah, because um, it can deplete you. I mean, being being on social media, and that's why people don't even, uh, they take fasts. They take social media fasts. I mean, I come from a culture where, and you have you have Lent in Christianity, and, but I, you know, we have Ramadan where you fast for uh, a month of food and water and sex and for the daytime at least and the idea is you're purging and you're 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 coming clean again you're almost being born again so that you can receive more so so it was interesting while sort of researching the different fasts 
to learn that there's a media fast because because you are allowing all these voices and all these energies to enter your space mm-hmm. and 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 that too can be corrupting yeah it's actually a popular thing in um christian circles is for lent to give up social media that is a uh, uh fascinating yeah it's a, a fascinating it's a new trend over the last you know 10 years i've seen quite a lot of that um and yeah and so and i actually i'm also reminded of uh lionel trilling um who sort of a theorist that i like and um his uh his book sincerity and authenticity which he and he, he kind of uh, it's a critique of a modern view of authenticity in which you're sort of, if it's an internally focused thing. And so he's arguing kind of for an older idea of what he calls sincerity. And he looks at Polonius's speech uh, in um, Hamlet to thine own self be true so that mm. thou, so that you can't be false to any other man. Right. And so that's a, mm. a sense of being kind of true to yourself for a public mm-hmm. good is how kind of mm-hmm. um, Trilling is, is reading that. And so mm-hmm. and, and I, when you're the way you're describing the preparation, the kind of in silence and solitude to mm-hmm. sort of get your own act together before taking that business out into public so that you can better serve the public, I think, is uh, kind of what yeah. he had in mind with that. That's an excellent echo again, Danny. And I, I do believe truth agrees with itself that way. So when I see, for example, writers who, who have not met each other even read each other saying the same thing like one of the early examples i had was oscar wilde and nietzsche for example worlds apart supposedly but i do think that there's this notion of if you know yourself better you are adding to the sum of human knowledge so you owe it not just yourself but to others to spend that time and care to to know yourself before you approach the world because otherwise you just bring in uh, a kind of noise that is of help to no one um absolutely right um and and so yeah i think uh an aphorism is a wonderful way into this giant conversation of minds across time. And, and I think that that collective wisdom is just embodied in, in such great ways here. Um, before I let you go, though, I do want to talk about uh, very little of this book is actually political. Uh, most of it is sort of on this kind of personal philosophical level, as I said, um, even the stuff about social media. The very end of the book, um, the second to last page, there's a series of aphorisms on page 213 that are um, about military um, life. They're about um, receiving the alien. And I feel like there's something you're leaving us with there. And so um, if I can maybe just read one, um, how militaries are a little organized or are a little like organized pedophilia, corrupt elders, seducing the young, abusing their minds and bodies, then discarding them afterwards. In wars, post-traumatic stress disorder can be another name for conscience, right? So mm. you, you've got some uh, political commentary going there. Uh, and then there's the one about alien movies I want to talk about in a little bit. But w- you held off quite a bit on that, but you still added it. Like what was going through your um, you know, creative process when you uh, decided to do that? Well, I- I'm of two minds about this. Uh, essentially, I- 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 I'm an apolitical creature. But I do think at the same time that there are times, certain historical moments, where you cannot afford to pretend you don't notice that the sort of the world is going to hell in a basket. And mm-hmm. so you have to just you have to just recognize what you're seeing around you. So these aphorisms, 
I, I, if ideally in an ideal world, I would rather not touch politics because I think politics is ephemeral and of its moment. And, and if it repeats itself, it repeats itself because human nature has not learned the lessons that it was about its own self. Uh, politics is very of the moment. It, it ages poorly. Um, it, you know, it, it's, it doesn't tell you, it tells you some large truths, but it's very finite and limited and has a, uh, it's stamped with a very, with a date. And I, I prefer not to enter that world. That said, coming from Egypt, where everything is royally messed up, especially post-revolution, where, you know, we dare to hope again, and we ended up, there was this terrific cartoon about people going from uh, a large cage, and then there was the revolution, where they thought they were free, and they entered a narrower cage, which is the current military dictatorship we have. Coming from that environment, entering into this environment with Trump, who really, I mean, I, I would not have even imagined is a, a plausible candidate, and especially in America, of all places, you know, uh, with with their um, with their I don't even know what the word is with their message that they're putting out. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not even a plausible thing. But then, of course, he can only exist in a world that is uh, less than ideal, because everything is connected: Brexit and terrorism and the rest of it. And he would not have an audience if the world was in, in better shape. He would simply not, you could not, you could not lend your ear to that shade of hate and ignorance if you knew otherwise, if you had other examples. So, so every once in a while, uh, I will write an article. I, I, I prefer to keep my politics to prose. So I've written pieces back home, here in Slate Magazine and other places where I've talked about the unexemplary situation in Egypt or the unexemplary uh, situation for me as an Arab American in Trump's America. But I really try to keep it out of poetry and, and the aphorisms because I think that they're somehow beyond that. Uh, they, they should occupy themselves with the realm of the spirit. Uh, and, and the realm of the spirit would not even recognize these as fundamentals. These are symptoms, but they're not... They're not the true malady. But at the same time, I, I live here and now, and I couldn't avoid them. Mm. Um, yeah, that makes um, a lot of sense to me, actually. And I think it's actually a really good um, resolution to the problem <laughs> of art and politics. And it's interesting to me that you, you, you made the point to say that you don't like to um, use poetry basically to as a form to address these issues and i, I think that that's an interesting um philosophy pure i i mean I, i'm an idealist danny and this is going to sound ridiculous and all the activists in the world will have <laughs> you know their their knives and clubs out for me saying this back home and here but i even darwish even mahmoud darwish who is considered palestine's national treasure speaks about and again i'm paraphrasing you know, how, you know, every day, two martyrs, I don't know, 30 trees lost, I don't know how many um, uh, hopes uh, dashed, and the damage to the poem and the structural damage to the play. The, the artist is wishes not to contaminate this eternal sphere with this ephemeral, um, if, I don't know. I, I I still think of the realm of politics, even though it's where we live now, as being something that doesn't belong to the to the eternal. 
And, and yeah, and you have a lot of um, aphorisms in here about that are critiques of materialism, basically, and individualism yeah. um, and atheism and these sorts of things. And I think that what you're identifying there is, is of similar of a similar vein. You've got politics, which are kind of a material thing, and your work mm-hmm. is a very kind of spiritual thing. And I think that you, you sort of conceive yourself as a poet um, along more along those lines. And so that, it makes perfect sense to me. Um, um, I do want to like ask you to, to read the last one on page. I'm not the last one in the book, but on page 213, um, pity that the majority of alien movies, because um, I, I think that's a really fascinating um, cultural observation that has a real political uh, import to it. Um, do you want to talk? Do you want to read that one? Sure, sure. But I, I will preface this by saying I did not have that in mind consciously. So again, it's a case of the reader <laughs> revealing something to the author. Okay, I'm glad you think okay. that that's possible because my students think no, that that's bunk. <laughs> that is absolutely possible. That's why the reader, the, the work is not complete until it's read. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. Pity that in the majority of alien movies, our li- uh, sorry, other life forms visit to invade and destroy our planet. Perhaps when we can conceive of more peaceful, curious, generous strangers we will be less prone to invade and destroy other countries. Well, now that you say it, I guess there is a political, especially that second line. Yeah. Um, it did. It does throw me off that that the majority of alien movies have them coming to sort of pillage and burn and 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 occupy and this kind of thing. And I think what a what a limited imagination. Why can't you see them coming? to sort of commune or, or harmonize or elevate. And, and I think it's the fear of the other. It's the fear of the unknown, which is so human. And I don't want to leave myself out of this. It's, it's so basic. And so I, I think the second half, let me find this again. The second half, uh, perhaps when we can conceive of more peaceful, curious, generous strangers will be less prone to invade and destroy other countries. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, I must have had that politics in mind because this idea of vilifying the other, not giving them the, the same humanity as ourselves, for example, and, and, and forgive me, I'll close on a political note. Um, you know, 9-11 is atrocious. Is Like I said earlier, one life is too many. Too many. You know, one innocent life is unspeakable but to but to hold on to 9-11 and to say remember 9-11 and never forget 9-11 and in the same breath to make no mention of a retaliation that involved hundreds of thousands of innocent people that seems to me rich i mean it's 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 beyond i mean it's certainly lacking in self-knowledge and and just grossly unfair because we don't know the names of of all the innocents that were uh, wrongly uh, murdered in 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 a retaliation that was gross and disproportionate so if we take this again on a personal level if someone has wronged me how i react almost disqualifies me from holding on to that grudge and feeling sorry for myself mm-hmm. So I, I, I just think if our allegiances are larger than nation state, et cetera, et cetera, and they are to humanity at large, then we say, 
Yes, of course, it was a great human tragedy and a great human loss. But if we're going to mention it and hold on to it, then it's worthwhile mentioning that hundreds of thousands were wrongly murdered as retaliation to that. And so that should also be part of the larger picture of our mourning as humans. Absolutely, because we're holding ourselves essentially to a different moral standard than to people. Yes. And so I think there's no exchange rate. One human life equals another human life. It's not one to 10 or 10 to 20. Yeah. No, you're, you're totally, um, I'm on the same boat there. Uh, I totally agree with you there. And then I think that the, the words you use in that second half, peaceful, curious, and generous, really, and it sums up the general philosophy of this entire collection. I think that that's the, the personal uh, reflective nature of the, of the aphorisms are to help people get there, um, mm-hmm. to get to that point of state of mind, I guess. Um, and so, no, I think that um, it, it's a really beautiful aphorism, which, by the way, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Arrival um, uh, that came no. out a few years ago. This is actually the premise of that movie. It's just what you're hoping for. Um, you should definitely Arrival. see. <laughs> yes, you should, it was Amy Adams. I'm writing this down. I'm, 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 I'm hungry for, for tips for yes. movies and books. Not the one with Charlie Sheen. It's the one with Amy Adams. Um, and so, Amy yes. Amy Adams. Yes. Um, and it's uh, it's basically, that's the premise of this uh, of this movie is that this kind of alien does exist and, and it's uh and we don't know what to do with them. And so it's, it's really, I mean, they, they are, they are potentially out there. And if you want, if you, you know, if you want to welcome a friendly alien, then think of a friendly alien. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's a, it's, it's a warning sign for us about the, the kind of art that we consume as a culture. It not only reflects our current mindset, but it shapes future mindsets, right? I, I, I fully agree. Yeah. And so I, and I, which is all the more reason for me to recommend this really wonderful book of aphorisms. Um, uh, yeah, he, yeah, he, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me. Uh, yeah, he, uh, um, uh, I really can't uh, recommend this book enough. Um, those of you who are listening, I, I, he's such a gracious guy and, um, he's so wonderful to talk to. Please consider anytime you want to come on the show, you have an open in- invitation, sir. I, I'm uh, I'm honored to have this conversation. I I think it's good to be able to talk with just with with one's guard down freely like this, and I'm I'm really grateful for it. Yeah, well, I'm grateful to have read these, and I'm going to keep these close to my chest for a long time, and uh, and uh, and share them freely with people um, who I think they can help because it's a really a terrific uh, resource of kind of just moral growth for me, and so I, I really do appreciate thank it. Um, those of you who are listening, thank you so much for listening. Please get in contact with the show if you go to our Facebook page or we have a Twitter account. There's a Gmail account if you go to sectarianinterviewpodcast.com. There'll be links to all that. But I'd love to hear from you, um, and please do give this book a chance um i will provide some links where you can find it um there's some articles there's a pbs uh news hour profile and uh that we're, we're, we'll share and all sorts of really great resources to really dive into this wonderful book um, of a wonderful form of art uh for yahia lababidi i am danny anderson thanking you for listening to another episode of the sectarian review podcast Wait,